Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Story Blender. This is Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. Now, our author today that we're interviewing is one of the most prolific and successful authors in North America. Sandra Brown is the author of 68 New York Times bestsellers, including Sting, Mean Streak, Friction, Deadline, Low Pressure, Lethal, and Rainwater. Writing professionally since 1981, Brown has published over 75 novels and has upwards of 80 million copies of her books in print worldwide. Her work has been translated into 34 languages. Her episode on True TV's Murder by the Book premiered this series in 2008, and she's appeared in 2010 on Investigation Discovery series Hardcover Mysteries. Television movies have been made out of her novels French Silk, Smokescreen, and Ricochet. Brown holds an honorary doctorate from Texas Christian University, where she and her husband have set up a scholarship that's awarded annually. She has served as president of Mystery Writers of America. She was honored uh, as the Thriller Master, the top award given by the International Thriller Writers, and has also been honored with the Romance Writers of America's Lifetime Achievement Award. So thanks for joining me, Sandra. Well, thank you very much, Steve. It's uh, it's an honor to be on the show. Well, first of all, you seem like such a kind and pleasant person, and yet you write <laughs> about mystery, murder, and mayhem. And I'm wondering, where does all that come from? I guess it's the alter ego. Uh, I I grew up um, in, in a very um, conservative, normal uh, family atmosphere. I was the oldest of um, five daughters, so I have four younger sisters, um, churchgoers, taxpayers, uh, very traditional. Um, and I always, you know, had to be um, the example uh, for my little <laughs> sisters. It was always, you know, uh, you know, set a good example, um, straight A student, all of that kind of thing, and um, just so, you know, disgustingly good. Uh, <laughs> and, so, and I guess when I started writing, it was like uh, I could now, you know, my my darker. Uh, Side, uh, it could could live vicariously through my uh, villains, and uh, so sometimes you know people will look on the on the jacket um, cover picture, and and then they they read the books, and it doesn't quite mesh. You know, they expect a real tough guy kind of person. <laughs> And um, so I, I guess that's where that that comes from. It's it's the id part of my personality. Well, it has certainly worked out well for you. And um, exploring the dark side is something that I think the readers are drawn to in your stories. Um, they're not as dark as maybe you know they're they're not disgusting or horror or something like that. No, I'm, no, not at uh, all. They are. I don't give my uh, I, I don't punish myself that way. Yeah. Um if if you know anybody is just really so uh heinous that um it it makes me uncomfortable then I know it's going to make the reader uncomfortable and I don't want to live with that person for a year. And I yeah. do live with my characters for a year. And it's like why would I want to put myself through that? And there was a a story uh, not too many years ago that occurred 
uh, a crime that occurred in um, in the area where I live in Dallas Fort Worth, and it involved a child. And I started to, I thought, well, that would maybe make a basis for a story. And so I started reading the newspaper accounts and and watching uh, television accounts. And the more I got into it, the more I thought, I I just don't want to go there. You know, it was just almost too dark. And um, so I, I stay away from from some things, but. I'm really intrigued by villains who are more abusive of of their authority, Mm. Um, you know, that are in the legal profession and they're totally corrupt or it's um, uh, somebody that is is abusing the power in which they've been vested and the influence over people. And I find the the best villains are the ones that are invisible. You know, if you're walking in a dark alley and you see somebody, you know, that that looks scary, uh, your fear factor kicks in and you, you start, you know, seeking means of avoidance. But if you've if someone has been entrusted to, uh, uh, you know, take care of you or protect you or influence you in a positive way, but they're doing just the opposite, to me, um, that kind of villain is is more interesting because you you don't see them coming, um, and you you know you you your fear factor it may take a while before it kicks in. Um, and I, I like to give villains also a, a backstory. I think it's interesting if we know where they're coming from. You know what made them uh, uh, do that. You know, and and I've written about psychopaths that were just evil because they, you know, had that genetic quirk that made them right. the Ted Bundy, you know, or something like that. But I really like to give my villains. Um, a make them a real character that people can uh, identify with if not if not relate to they can at least identify with you know with the policeman who's corrupt or with the minister um who abuses the faith that's placed in him and so it's that kind of villain that that I think readers find interesting and I find more interesting yeah, and when you were talking about that, it made me think of how um, sometimes I think the most frightening stories are happen to us when we feel in a safe place, and then yes, that absolutely. safety is betrayed against us. Yeah, uh-huh. there was um, there's a scene in in one of my novels that when this um, this the villain actually sneaks into a home and goes into the child's bedroom, and there's. Um, Anyway, a stuffed animal has fallen to the floor, and he kind of nestles it back up in the boy's arms and then goes in to the woman's bedroom and steals a hairbrush. And that's all that he ends up doing. But, but a that's lot of a very have, personal invasion, though. Right. It's yeah, a, a, lot of a very personal violation. Most, yeah, the most troubling scene in that novel. And, <laughs> and uh, Because we feel so safe in our homes and right. think that someone right. has invaded that safety. Yeah, that's, that's nice. I like that. Now, do you ever um, – so when you're thinking about your villains, and I love your term making them invisible, invisible villains, 
um, and you kind of look at their backstory. Does that come to you before you're writing? Like uh, I know some authors do detailed histories of characters and so on, or does that develop as you get to know the character over the course of writing the book? It, it's it's uh, I never have done character profiles. I have I find um, usually. Uh, as in all my writing, and I'll probably say this more than once, I feel like the character is there. I don't ever feel like I create anything. I feel as though the characters are there, the story is there, the plot is is happening in a, a parallel universe, and it's up to me to excavate it, to bring it forward. So when I set out to write, it's it's sort of like the characters have come to me and said, write about us, you know, write about me. Right. I'm interesting. Um, and so when I when I began putting them into place, um, they began to take a more sharper focus. They they're kind of a hazy. Um, uh, image, you know, that, okay, she's going to be this and he's going to be that. And I'm going to discover why he's got this, you know, burr under his saddle. I've, I've got to discover why she has this particular fear um, and why the villain is this particularly mean. Um, and, and so I kind of put them in place, but in the first draft, we're still getting acquainted. We're still getting to know each other. And, and generally, they, they offer me little tidbits of information along the way. And so it may be the middle of the first draft or three-quarters of the way through the first draft, and I'll come to an aha moment. Aha, that's what happened. That, that's why, you know, this, that, and the other. And, sure. and a... Um, a really good example of that uh, is in Sting, uh, because we know that the heroine has an almost, um, uh, she's obsessively protective of this younger brother who's an absolute slime ball, and he, he's been in prison or in protective custody by the U.S. Marshal Service, and he escapes, and that's kind of the catalytic event that sets the whole story into motion. But the reader doesn't know why uh, she has this, even though he has no redeeming qualities whatsoever, why she's so protective of this brother and, uh, and enables him to use her uh, for nefarious purposes. And, it went, and I didn't know why. <laughs> sure. I said, what's the matter with you? You know, why don't you tell this guy, get out of my life and mean it? And uh, it wasn't until the middle of the book, and she started telling the hero what had happened in their childhood that uh, created this kind of, you know, symbiotic relationship between them that is, is, is uh, not a good relationship for either one of them. And so until she started actually telling it, and I began writing it down, did I even know? Uh, so right. that's a perfect example of how they they tell me um, their 
their history, their story. And so often when I begin, I have a general idea of what the plot's going to be, and I build in some surprises, and I know when, you know, certain things have to happen uh, in the course of the story that flip it, you know, that that yeah. you're leading the reader down one path and all of a sudden it flips, and it usually flips for the character, too. It's usually um, an epiphany or a decision that they've withheld up to that point, and then it's like, okay, by golly, I'm going to do this. Um, so I build those things in, but I have to be honest and say that the some of the best plot twists um, I've ever had in my books, I didn't see coming. <laughs> they, they surprised the heck out of me, too. And that's what makes it so much fun to write fiction is that, I, if I'm not having a good time, the reader's not going to have a good time. So if I'm going along thinking this is going to happen and then a character, you know, pulls something over on me or something will happen, it'll be like, oh, my gosh, you know. And, and so it, I like to be surprised, too. Yeah, so writing for you is as much a, uh, a journey of discovery as you pull the book together, it totally as it is, is. and, and as then often, reading. you know, the discovery just isn't there, and I can go a week um, wishing the characters would do something, and they would look at me. They'll be looking at me like, "Okay, you got us in this fix. Get us out of it." <laughs> but I don't know how. I don't know how. And then, you know, something will happen that will kind of open it up. Uh, so I do come to dead ends sometimes, and I think, okay, backtrack, see where you went wrong, you know, what happened here, why isn't this panning out? So I go through the, the agony as well as the ecstasy. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's wonderful. I um, Oftentimes, uh, people that I interview, a question comes up, do they outline or not outline, plot it out and not plot it out, but just the excitement, um that you have of watching the organic story come together, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the whole point. It's supposed to be enjoyable. And right. I think some and and I love burdened. the word oh, organic yeah. because it, it really is. It, it's a, uh, if I have a visceral reaction to something that happens to the character or uh, if I laugh out loud at something that someone, a uh, character says, or if, um, Something that either happens or they say, you know, gets me kind of choked up, I get real emotional, then I have to think that my reader is going to have that same kind of um, visceral reaction to it, um, that their palms are going to sweat if it's a, if it's a suspenseful scene, that they're going to chuckle if it's something that's funny, that they're going to feel um, the sexual tension, you know, between the characters, um, and and so it it really is very organic for me, um, and and then sometimes it's just also very 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 hard work, and so in answer long answer to your question previously, I don't outline the characters to the nth degree. I kind of sure. know what they are and where they're coming from what their goal is or what their goals are and why they're at cross purposes, uh, but also why they are suddenly um, uh, codependent. 
grudgingly, but each needs the other for something, while at the same time they're they're going for the same thing, but in a different way and for a different reason. Um, and so I kind of know all of these things, um, but I don't outline you know, chapter by chapter, scene by scene. I kind of know where I'm going, but I don't know how I'm going to get there. Yeah, when you were talking about discovery, uh, I thought of um, Robert Frost once said, no tear in the writer, no tear in the reader, no discovery in the writer, no discovery in the reader. Right. uh, I think it's just as true for fiction writing as it is for poetry. Um, and when you have those visceral moments those that have that emotional resonance for you, I'm certain that those uh, also resonate for your readers. Well, you... I, I certainly hope so. Uh, that's what, you know, when I open a book, uh, if it's a romance, I want to fall madly in love. If it's hmm. something scary, then I, I want to be on the edge of my seat. You know, if it's... Uh, something really heartfelt if it's a tragedy um i want to be you know i want to be moved by it i want that book to live with me for days after you know and i can still uh, get teary-eyed thinking about it so that's what i'm seeking as a reader i want to be transported from from my world into the character's world and live it right along with them and so that's what i try to do with my reader and the for me um the purpose of a fiction writer is to transport the reader to entertain them to take them into another place and time and another life and um, and if I even get halfway there, then I feel like, you know, I've done a good job. Years ago, I, I wrote a, um, a, a Western historical and, um, and had such a good character that uh, my editor said, all the, all the ladies here in the office have a request of you. And it's usually like <laughs> you sign their great aunt's, you know, book for her birthday or something but she said they want you to write a story and feature you know this character is the hero and i said okay but you know he's only 16 uh in the book and and so i thought well first of all i'm gonna have to age him like by 20 years you know and then (laughs) so i wrote i wrote the sequel and it takes place like you know 20 years after the first book and the hero of the first one gets killed. And, and the second book, oh, my gosh, I got, I got hate mail. And I still, to this day, and this book is like, oh, gosh, 30 years old. But uh, every time people read it, they know that there's a sequel. They can't wait to read it. And then when this character dies, but when I was writing it, I was just sobbing, you know, in my computer. Just it, I was just sobbing. And my husband comes in, and he goes, what in the world is wrong? And I said, Ross died. And he goes, oh, my God, who's Ross? Oh. <laughs> and I was thinking, I said, no, it's a, it's a character in my book. And so when when readers say, how could you, how dare you, I've been crying for three, and I'm going, well, then I did my job. <laughs> right. You know, if that if that character was that 
you know, endearing to you, if you felt it to that degree, then I did I did my job. You know, you weren't supposed to say, oh, ho-hum, you know, he died. Right. Um, you were supposed to feel it. You were supposed to feel the, the sorrow. Um, so anyway, that's just one example. But, yes, I do hope that I can evoke um, that kind of emotional response, no matter what the emotion is. I hope I can bring it to my reader. Yeah, and I think, you know, from your perspective of what you said earlier, it isn't so much that you killed him off, it's that you couldn't Somebody help. else did. Right, you couldn't <laughs> help but tell what happened, even though it was right. wrenching for you personally, because that was honest to that story. And, right. Um, you know, I think writers, we, we get this question often, well, why did you do this or why did you do that with the book? And, you know, for me, I'm like... It wasn't so much that I was trying to do something, but it was that was what was honest to that story, and um, and so. Well, and don't ever kill off an animal uh, because (laughs) oh, they you know I had this character who was really a a creepy. He he was a a psychopath, and um, but millionaire, gorgeous, movie star, gorgeous, charming, you know, but still, nevertheless, he was psycho. And um, and so he, he kills the dog. And he had done all these horrible things to women. Um, and the reader never objected to any of that, but I got more hate mail about, I'll never read you again for killing off Lucy or whatever the dog's name right. was. I was like, I didn't do it. (laughs) The guy who did it was a sociopath, you know, and a killer, rapist, sodomist, everything. And that was okay. (laughs) But when he killed the dog, they blamed me. (laughs) Yeah, I I heard from a reader who had written to me several times and basically said, do any more animals die in your books? Because if they do, I'm not going to read them. And I was trying to think. I'm never going to read you again, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to read you anymore. And so I looked, I I Googled the person just to find out, and and they worked for the, um, I think, PETA or something like that. Yeah. uh, Yeah. And so I was like, okay, well. Well, I mean, (laughs) here again, you know, we're supposed to be upset. I mean, you know, but it's, um, it's, it's strange what you know will will strike a chord. Uh, not always positive, usually positive, but not always positive with readers. Now, Sandra, you've been writing for years, and clearly, clearly, you're you're very prolific. And I'm wondering, do you find that it's getting easier to write your stories because of experience, or maybe more difficult because now you're more analytical about them, or or careful in what you're writing? Oh, it's it's harder. Uh, it's much, much harder. Um, I think when I, when I began, I certainly, and maybe I'm just remembering it better than it really was because it's always been torture. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 uh, we're, we're totally, uh, masochistic, you know, to do this, to bring this on ourselves. But when I began, I wrote, um, kind of like with a frenzy because I, when I began, it was just, uh, you know, I couldn't wait to to write, and I had kind of a blithe and, and naive uh, 
I get a, a, a image of what the life of the writer was going to be like because yeah. my father was an editorial writer for the newspaper, and so he had to go every day and and write something, and he would deliver it. And it would be in the newspaper, you know, the next morning, and so sure. he had to come up with however many words, you know, five hundred words or whatever it was, and um, so that discipline, just having to make something from nothing every day and of course he had news to draw on mm-hmm. um and and so that was that was one thing but i think i i just had this well i'll sit down at the typewriter and and so i would just you know began and just was writing 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 and my first three books came so quickly and then i had a fourth one uh due on a contract and there was nothing i had absolutely nothing and I thought, wait, what happened? You know, and so I remember talking to Daddy about it, and I said, I've got to come up with a, a plot, and I, there is just nothing. How do you do it? And he said, well, that's what they pay you for. <laughs> you sit down, and you sit there until something comes to you. And if you don't type anything but the sky is blue, the grass is green, that leads to more words. Yeah. And eventually, something will will come out of it. And I thought, yeah, this is this is work, you know. So I I think when I first started, it was like the first three stories I'd been thinking about for a long time. So they just, you know, it was just a matter of of relating them on paper. But then all of a sudden, you know, I had to start making up stuff. And <laughs> um, and I've been doing it for the for the last thirty years, but. Yeah, you have to make up stuff, and um, and I do um, I, because no publisher that I've ever worked with, no editor I've ever um, you know worked with, has ever said, "Gosh, you know, Sting did so well that we we don't have." much expectation for seeing red we're going to lower the bar <laughs> that just never happens yeah they said oh sting did so well we think we can do this much better this year and so we want the next book to be as good if not better they've never said you can you can you know you get a pass on this one can coast yeah. and and so it just gets harder and harder and harder because the expectation of my agent my editor my publisher and most importantly my reader um is so high that i feel the pressure of that expectation every single day and i go to the keyboard knees knocking um in in fear that whatever you know Cal and I had yesterday disappeared in the night it vaporized uh, <laughs> it's the first 77 books have been a fluke uh, that I'm the greatest imposter who was ever born and I'm about to be exposed as such so it's a daily um running of the gauntlet it really is um i never feel as though i'm quite there i never feel as though i've made it and and actually i think that 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 fear factor is a very positive thing i think that um 
if I ever stopped feeling that, my career would be over because mm. it's a it's a tremendous motivator um, to always strive to be better and to live up to expectation. Now, how when you're writing, how do you turn off the voice of the critic or the editor or the person who might write to you one day and say, I didn't like that you killed this dog or whatever it is? And how do you, I mean, turn off all those voices? I think a lot of writers hear those voices, and well, no one's going to like this, and especially mm-hmm. uh, you're not the only one to, you know, sit down and I love how you put it that the first 70, 70, what, seven books have been a fluke. I don't think they've been a fluke, though. Well, uh, and and logically I know that, but when I'm, I'm, you know, if I'm stalled or if I'm trying to come up with a new plot, I can be sitting there in my office and, and look at that bookshelf and see all those books and all their incarnations and all the reprints and... Um, my first New York Times bestseller, which was published in 1990, I'd been writing for nine years before I made the New York Times bestseller list, and that uh, I'd been published for nine years. And that um, that first book to make it just went into its 40th printing. Wow. Um, and so domestically. And so I look at, you know, that wall of books, and I think, how did I do that? I I don't know how I did that, because right now I'm a blank wall. You know, it's just a a blank screen, and that cursor's blinking, and I'll never have another original idea. Um, (laughs) But um, in terms of the voices, I've never written um, more than one book, (laughs) for an editor who was not absolutely mad about Sandra Brown's work. I think your editor has to be your biggest fan. Uh, I think that because if an editor didn't get me, if they didn't get the whole Southern vibe, if they didn't get um, where I was coming from with my characters or with my storylines or with the um, emotions and the um, all of the, all of the things that make up the characters if they didn't get that then then I didn't want to write for them because yeah. it would have been pointless uh, they never would have got it you know and I used to take um, criticism um, a whole lot harder than I do now because <laughs> I do have the statistics to back up that I've done something right. Sure. <laughs> you know, so so it's like that was that that person's opinion and when they've written sixty eight New York Times bestsellers, um I might take their criticism a little bit, you know, uh more seriously. Um, because, and, and yet, you know, it does, it does live with you and I can get, you know, on, on Amazon or something, the, the reader critiques that are left there or something. And it doesn't matter how many five stars I've got. 
if I've got a one star, it's like, well, what was wrong with that? You know, what? <laughs> so, but it just, I, I kind of have to let it go. I just have to let it go because, yeah. um, you know, I've got readers around the world, um, and I've been to Japan and met devoted readers. I went to the Czech Republic and had people waiting in line for hours. I mean, it wrapped around the the little kiosk thing like four times. And some of them were in their 80s. And they were there because my books were some of the first to get into the Czech Republic after the Iron Curtain went down in 1989. So I was the first exposure to the West that they'd had in 40 years. And so I had 80s year old uh, men and women wept in front of me because they said you were the first book I read after, you know. And, and so it's those kinds of stories, it's those kinds of things that valid, that give me validation. Now, do you have any um, pet peeves of other, not necessarily other specific authors, but of other books? So when you're reading a book, something that maybe just, bugs you about that book i know for me it's believability as soon as things are no longer believable and i don't buy it i'm really not in the story anymore yeah um, and that could come well, by one how of my pet, one of my pet peeves is uh jumping point of view hmm. um i i write from uh i write from several points of view within a story but never uh, if I open a scene from a character's point of view, I stay in that character's head until I switch scenes. Right. So if uh, if a um, if a writer if I'm in one character's head and then all of a sudden I'm in another character's head, I'm going like, wait a minute, who said who's thinking that? You know, and I have to go back. And and to me, it's anything that draws you out of the story. You're talking about plausibility. Yeah. Um, I kind of resent it when a writer is trying to show off how smart he or she is. Yeah. Um, you know, if they're trying to dazzle me with the research they've done, um, then I'm like, you've just pulled me out of your story. Because I know that you're trying to impress me with all what you've done. And to me, research should be totally invisible to the reader. The research you've done should should come out in something that a, a character says, or it can be just in a sentence of narrative. But it's not; it doesn't read like a textbook. It, it's stated as as something that the reader should already know. It's kind of an mm. assumption that the reader yeah. would already know that. And so to me, and it gets there, it gets in the reader's mind, but I haven't stepped up on a behind a podium all of a sudden and explained something, you know, to just show off that I know it. And so I kind of, anything, any word even, um, you know, the, the pest writers are the ones that, don't use the big words. <laughs> they they write dialogue like people talk, and they write narrative in a 
conversational way or if they're in the head of a character, it's in, a, in the way that the character would think it to themselves, not fancy. And uh, so to me, anything that makes that, that jumps out at the reader and draws them out of the story is not good writing. And so, and I do this a lot on my first draft, just when I'm trying to get the, I'll I'll try to impress myself. And then when (laughs) I go back and read it, I thought, well, that character wouldn't think that. That character wouldn't say that. Why did I write it that way? And I go back and I take out all the fancy words and just write it like a normal person thinks and talks. That's I think that's great advice, and it's a pet peeve, I think, that you're not alone with. I think that bothers, you know, a lot of people. It, mm-hmm. it bugs mm-hmm. me as soon as I see the author intruding on the story, whether he's trying to right. get his political point across or his research right. off and, and yeah, right. all of that. Um, so tell us about your newest project, your newest book that's coming out here in August. Yeah, uh, it's called Seeing Red. And um, it the uh, the catalytic event um, or, or the the basis of the plot. Let's put it that way, because it's really not the catalytic event that gets things going. But um, it's based on a an explosion in a uh, downtown Dallas hotel. In the early 90s, and it was four bombs that were set to go off simultaneously and bring the building down. Uh, I called it the Pegasus Hotel because Pegasus, uh, the mobile flying red horse, uh, was uh, the the top of the skyline for decades in Dallas. It was a neon Pegasus, and so I call the hotel the Pegasus Hotel. Oh, yeah. um, but actually, the the idea um, for the book was uh, the Oklahoma City bombing. My oh, right. sure. uh, children were in uh, at University of Oklahoma in Norman uh, when that took place, and it took place um, about three weeks before my daughter's graduation from OU. She was taking courses in the Medical Arts Center of the university in downtown Oklahoma City, and it was about six blocks away from the Murrow Building Hmm. when the explosion occurred. And she was there for speech pathology, but all of the pre-med students rushed to the, the scene. They knew something terrible had happened. And she was trying to get back to campus. She was trying to get out of the city. And by, you know, within minutes, they had a grid, you know, um, blocking off all the streets of downtown. And so it took her, like, forever just to get, you know, out of out of the out of the downtown area. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, it was a very um, somber uh, commencement exercises. Uh, there was her um, her college did their little graduation in First Methodist Church uh, in downtown Oklahoma City, and all the stained glass windows had been blown out. They were boarded up. The aggregate floor had hmm. been cracked in several places. So I mean, and of course 
you still couldn't get near the building because ATF and everybody was still conducting, FBI was still conducting their investigation. So it was a very somber, and everybody knew somebody who knew somebody. I mean, it was, it was, um, had an impact, let's put it that way. So anyway, um, but that iconic photograph of the fireman carrying the child's body out of the building, you know, haunted the world. And so it was, it was thinking about iconic photographs like that, uh, capturing a moment in time. The, the Vietnamese girl running naked yeah. along the road, you know, uh, burned with napalm and, and such pictures as that. And I wondered, you know, does the photograph have the impact on the individual in the photograph as it does on on the people who see the photograph? And if, if it does impact their lives, is it for the good or for the worse? You know, sure. is it for better or for worse? So I put my, uh, this character uh, in my Pegasus Hotel bombing leading out uh, a group of survivors out of the, you know, the building that is has collapsed to nothing, smoke, uh, emergency vehicles, and here he comes carrying a child and, and leading these others out, um, a man with a, a compound fracture on his leg, a woman, you know, blindly choking, all of them burned, you know, all of this. And I moved it forward to the present day, so it happened like 25 years ago. Okay. And he made a career off of that photograph. Mm. He made a career yeah. of being a hero. And the hero of my book is his son. Huh. So that's, that's kind of... Yeah, that's that a, a really the, interesting uh, premise. Yeah, and and so then there is a you know, a catalytic event that, that thrust us into, you know, the present and uh, and and having to live down being the you know, the son of a hero. Uh, and and then the heroine plays a very key role and and all of that. So anyway, that that's the long, long answer uh, <laughs> to your question. But but that those are the characters. It's the they call him the major because he was a uh, former major in the military, and so they call him the major, and uh, and so now he's a man in his sixties, uh, and then his son uh, Trapper is the uh, hero, and then my heroine's name is Kara Bailey, and she's a reporter. Uh, for a television magazine news show, a la 60 Minutes. Yeah. And uh, she wants to do a commemorative piece on the 25th anniversary of the bombing, and that's kind of where everything starts going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, it's really interesting, too, to see the genesis of the book, you know, your personal connection through your daughter to yeah. that actual bombing. Um, just the seeing the photographs and wondering, and that's... To me, that's a writer's mind to see something and then to ask that question. I wonder what this person's story, you know, is or becomes. Um, 
Well, don't you think we as novelists are are very nosy? Uh, um, Don't you think we're nosy by nature? We we never uh, look at something and and just let it go by without observing. I think we're observers. And um, and if something that we observe starts raising questions in our mind, then you have to think, well, if I plant those questions in the reader's mind, then you're, you've got the you've got the makings of a story. Um, and if you know the answers, but the reader doesn't, <laughs> then you've really got a story. That's when an idea becomes a story. Uh, is when there's one thing, if I ever find the one thing, the one thing that I know that the reader doesn't know, hmm. that's what that's what makes an idea into a story because I will start planting questions in the reader's mind early on. They shouldn't be obvious, although it could be. Uh, could be who done it. Could be your first sentence, and then, and you don't let the reader know until the very end. But it's usually more subtle than that. You start leaving them with unresolved, you know, uh, thoughts, uh, unended thoughts, open ended, and you keep planning those, and and they will be answered along the way. But the first question you ask or plant in the reader's mind should be the last one you answer. That's the thing that keeps them reading. And whatever that is, I have to figure that out. When I have an idea, I may have some great scenes and great characters in my head, but it will just be good scenes and good characters. It's I've got to find that thread. I've got to find that thing that I know that the that the reader will not know until the very end of the story. And I think that, that, yeah, that final reveal, that that uh is so huge. Um, And no matter what genre you're writing in, for you, you've written suspense, a mystery, uh, romance, but all of them revolve around that final reveal. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, and that's, that's the hard part, because as I say, I can have some great, you know, ideas, and and I can get you know the building up energy for for a set of characters. Go, that'd really be interesting. But you, I put them in this mess, you know, this gumbo of bad stuff, and um, but I've got to figure out what it is that, and it it can be something that. The character is withholding, or it may be something that the character is totally unaware of. You know, sometimes they don't even know what it is until the end of the book. Or it can be a secret that they're withholding until the end. But, you know, I have to figure out what that one thing is that only I know, and possibly the character, a main character, but nobody else will. And hopefully the reader won't until (laughs) until I reveal it. Um, you, when you mentioned that, you know, we as novelists are observers, um, I thought of being at the Atlanta airport one day, and I was down by the um, the trains, and there was a, a giant poster for maybe St. Jude's or one of the cancer research centers mm-hmm. for children. Mm-hmm. And they had, you know, a picture of a, of a child there, um, maybe 8 or 10-year-old, 
and it was talking about, you know, hopefully you can help them so that this child can reach their dreams. And I just stood there and stared at it as all these people kept walking past me and nobody was, you know, paying any attention to the sign. And I thought, I wonder how often they change their marketing campaign after the children die. Mm. Mm. Right. Like, cause clearly they're very, uh, you know, sick or have cancer. And I thought, right. I wonder how long this stays up after that child has actually passed. And mm-hmm. that ended up being the impetus for an entire book. And, mm-hmm. um, and it was just that moment. And, and I love yeah. how in, in your illustrations that you've given, there's a moment, there's, there's an observation that you, that you had because of your questioning, uh, you know, curiosity and your questioning attitude about life and, and just about story. And that that idea then led to story through 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 your process and through your revelation. It's a, yeah, I call it the aha moment. Yeah. And it's when everything inside me just kind of goes very still. You know, it's like, that's it. That's yeah. it. And then I get this real effervescent, you know, feeling in, in my gut. And it's like, yes, that's it. That's the aha. That's the that's the thread that runs from the beginning of the book to the end of the book and everything else, you know, like my mother used to sew all the time for all those five girls and she would gather fabric, you know, gather and and uh you have to have that thread that you gather everything else along. It's all hanging from it, but you've got to have that that one thread and I call it when I get that it's the aha moment it's the then I know I've got a story and I can put the notepad down and turn to the computer and you know start start putting it down Uh, so it's a very and and I remember one I started one book I don't even remember now which one it was I started one book and I had some really good scenes I think it was deadline and I had, I was like, I don't know, five or six or eight chapters into it, but I just felt like I had to keep writing, you know, yeah. I, I had to, I had to keep writing, but I knew it wasn't right. And, um, we went on vacation. We're on the Danube River on a Viking cruise ship with friends. And I was lying in, in our, stateroom bed one morning and just drifting along drifting in and out of thought not ready to get up yet (laughs) and it i was thinking about the prologue i'd written and and i and and all of a sudden i i knew what i needed and it was like that aha that's what and so i got up that morning i started scribbling notes frantically my husband, who had gone to breakfast with our friend, came back to the room, and I was sitting there in my nightgown, you know, with this notepad, that's like the the ship stationery, <laughs> scribbling madly. And he said, "What in the world are you doing?" I said, "I I got it. I finally got it." And so I couldn't wait to get back home and start from the beginning and plant that quick question. And the yeah. reader's mind, and then I, I wound up having to rewrite, you know, a lot. Sure. It was basically like starting over, but there was a lot of it I could salvage, 
you know, and weave in into. So it wasn't all wasted, but then it started making sense. You know, then it started making making sense, and uh, so it's that it's that moment, and it can happen, you know, at any point along the plotting you know, procedure when I'm trying, I've got the characters, I've got the general thing, but what's the aha? What's the one thing that's holding it together? And then when I got it, you know, I knew it the instant because it made everything else make sense. And that's when the idea turns into a story. Yeah. (laughs) So we're all kind of schizophrenic. (laughs) Oh, that's great. This this has been a fantastic um, interview. I was taking some notes, actually, as you were talking. Just I love how you talked about invisible villains and catalytic events and knowing something that readers don't and that that it's revealed only at the very end. So I know our listeners are going to really enjoy and benefit from just listening through and maybe even listening through again because you had so many great points and great moments. Um, Sandra, tell us again the name of this new book. It's called Seeing Red. And, Seeing uh, Red, it yeah. Com- Seeing Red, and it comes out August 15th. Now, we want all of our readers to check that out. Now, if they're interested in some of your previous books, is there one that you would suggest that they start with to become more familiar with your work? Oh, gosh, that's so hard. Which child do you love the best? But I, I think um, I really like Sting, uh, and it's out in mass market paperback right now. Uh, I really liked it because the hero does something so unexpectedly at the end of Chapter 1 that you really start wondering, is he's really not the hero? And and so that character of Shaw um, is, is very, we don't quite know about him, but we see him do something absolutely stunningly shocking and you're like going what (laughs) and so um i think that'd be a good one to start with just in terms of the switch switches and surprises um a fan favorite seems to be um envy and um oh gosh and lethal uh i actually took the the uh hero from lethal and the title is is his description <laughs> he's lethal and I actually oh, yeah, took that right. character and paired him with uh CJ Box's Joe Pickett for the uh matchup anthology uh um, Oh yeah the matchup anthology because, now that's yeah. available too we should mention that yeah so Yeah because he is so antithetical you know the Joe Pickett uh, and and I thought they would the chemistry between them would be really good. So when we were asked to pair up uh, characters um, rather than pair Joe Pickett up with a, a female character that I'd had, I thought I'll make it kind of a bromance, you know, in a way. <laughs> I'll, I'll make it where you know they're they're grudging allies and each comes away learning a little bit about how the other you know operates and they're so totally opposite 
um, in their approach <laughs> to law enforcement. So, uh, yeah. So lethal would be a good one, um, but it's 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 really hard to say because I think, you know, all of them have merits, and uh, right. there are some characters that just stand out in my mind a little more than others. But uh, you know, I have to. I have to be afraid of all of the villains for one reason or another, and I have to love the hero and the heroine, you know, when I'm writing them. I, I have to really care care for them, you yeah. know, whether they're going to survive or not. I have to be afraid for them. So, um, I, I but those are some standout books that uh, come to mind automatically. Sure, excellent. Now, where's the best place for people to contact you or maybe follow you online to see when when you have, might have a book signing or an appearance somewhere? Yeah, my uh, well, they can follow me on Facebook. It's Sandra Brown Author, and uh, my website is sandrabrown.net or sandrabrown.com. Either one will get you there. And it's got all information about upcoming events. Um, each book has a, um, a a page in which I tell how I came up with the idea. For oh, instance, the page for Seeing Red, I basically tell the story that I told you about the explosion in Oklahoma City. Um, each each book has kind of the backstory of how I came up with the idea, which readers, I think, find interesting. Uh, there's book list, a uh, complete bibliography, and, of course, there are links to all of the places at which you can buy Sandra Brown books. <laughs> and we want to, of course, encourage all of our listeners to go and check out your books, especially the new one and and maybe one of the old favorites. Um, so you've been an excellent guest, Sandra. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, well, thank you for listeners. inviting me. Yeah, of course. And to all of our listeners, more information about our other guests and other broadcasts appears at thestoryblender.com. You can follow me at Reed Stephen James on Twitter or at stephenjames.net. And friends, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.